Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. In the 24th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we don our backpacks and put on our long-distance walking boots as we explore the mighty Pennine Way. And we discover the mammoth job of reversing more than 200 years of damage to the Peak District and the South Pennines. Hello and you're very welcome to the 24th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide through the next 25 minutes or so of outdoor and walking chat. Now, the Pennine Way was the first national trail in Great Britain, opened on the 24th of April 1965, meaning it's 50 years old in 2015. It's an epic 268 mile, that's 429 kilometres, walking route from Edale in Derbyshire to Kirkyetham in the Scottish Borders and it crosses some of the finest upland landscapes in England, from the Peak District through the Yorkshire Dales, across the North Pennines, and over Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland to the Cheevits. To find out more about what it is like to walk this adventurous trek, I am joined via Skype by two people who've done just that. Walker Rose Haken and writer Damien Hall, who wrote the official guidebook to the Pennine Way. Hello to both of you. So Damien, tell me about the Pennine Way. Well... Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a big question. It's going to celebrate its fiftieth anniversary next year, and there's a there's a quite well known story I think about how it came into being when uh, two American girls wrote to a newspaper here saying, "Is there anything like in Britain like with the Appalachian Trail?" And Tom Stevenson, who was a keen walker, you know, was a bit ashamed that there wasn't anything like that, but instantly thought, you know, the Pennines would make. A, I think his quote was a uh, wild, entrancing trail. Um, and he campaigned for for many years. It took something like 30 years for it to actually come about, which is a little bit shocking, really. And of course, it was the first national trail. There are quite a few more now. So how did you get on with the trail rows? I loved it. Um, I thought it was an epic adventure, really. I wanted to do it partly because of its history and because of it is the oldest national trail. Mm. And also, I think it's it's in need of a renaissance, really, because they've done so much work on it in the last few years to upgrade the paths and to lay flagstones across the, the boggy areas, which are many, so that I managed to get all the way from Edale to Kirk Yetton without a muddy foot. Wow. Which is really, wow. you know, I thought that was pretty impressive, really, <laughs> because I'd heard rumours that up to well, this is, these are old rumours, admittedly, but people used to say that you could end up up to your waist very easily in bog. Mm. So one of the things I loved about walking it was um, there are various sort of myths. It has a really big reputation for being, you know, a very wet place, very boggy, and almost sort of because Alfred Wainwright fell in a bog and was we had to risk it. it um was it black hill i think yeah so, and, he, and his his guidebook you know yeah he really didn't like the pennine way and and there's also a couple of f- very funny books about walking the pennine way which which do add to that reputation of it being incredibly tough and sort of unpleasant basically and but i'm when i walked it i just it was absolutely wonderful in almost every way i only got properly wet twice 
I definitely got mu muddy footprints <laughs> quite a lot there, Rose. I don't know how you managed that. That's very impressive. <laughs> well, I did it in the end of June, beginning of July, Damien, so it was very oh. hot and dry. That was the problem that I had, actually, that it was too hot. This could be a problem, couldn't it, keeping hydrated. So where did you stay on route, Rose? Well, I stayed in lots of uh, youth hostels and bunkhouses and a few small campsites. So you did a proper... A proper I did the proper self-supporting yeah. backpack. Because it, I, I got quotes for baggage transfer, and it was going to be... I mean, I won't name names, but it was going to be in the region of £400. Good grief. To carry my camping kit, which, I mean, I, I hadn't... I only toyed with the idea. I thought, well, I'll see how much it would cost. And as soon as I got the quote, I thought, well, that's I'd rather spend the £400 on a lighter kit that I can carry. Mm. Um, and so that, it cha that changed the course of the whole venture, really, that uh, single fact. So how did you do yours, Damien? I've actually done it twice now, but, but the second time was very different. But the first time I, I did it in two goes, slightly ashamed of that, but... Um, uh, it was in April two years ago, and it was very sunny and lovely. And I don't think I got wet at all. And, and again, I was staying at hostels. I, I actually carried a bivy bag, and I think I used it once, again, to my slight shame. And then I came back in, I think, September to, to, to what the, the rest of it up from, from, from Hawes. And I think I did get I, get, I got soaked twice overall, if I remember. But again, I was yes. staying in hostels. And the, the, one, the only one tricky bit with that is when you come to the, the, the Cheviot, it's about 28 miles, I think, in one go. And yes. I, I think that is, you know, that is manageable to some people if you're really going to have to rush, though. But some hostels in Byroness will sort of come and collect you and, and then take you back to where you were again. And then you can sort of do it like that. Right. Um, in January this year, I did something called the, the Spine Race, which is a foot race up the Pennine Way. And it basically you've got seven days to try and complete it which I just about managed, which was incredibly exciting and obviously a bit colder. But, it, I mean, again, I saw it in a completely different way. You know, um, High Cup was covered in snow and, uh, you know, just absolutely magnificent. Crossfell was just as horrible, but still, you know, really exciting. And obviously Greg's Hut, that much more exciting to sort of find in, in amongst the snow. So that was a very different way of doing it. And obviously it was quite dark some of the time, so I didn't always see some of my favourite bits again. But... Um, and it was definitely a bit boggy. With all respect to Damien, he came fourth in the spine race. Wow. Which is a very impressive feat. That's fantastic. It was. Well, I, I do think it was... Thank you. Um, I, I do think it was helpful to to have known the route. I mean, um, some people would have wrecked bits of it, but it was sometimes, especially in the dark, where you couldn't see a sign and, and you know, you were tired, it, it really helped to think, oh, well, I'm pretty sure it's left of the bog here or right by the... Uh... And not through it, like rainlight. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it, was, it was pretty pretty exciting, yeah. So, Rose, what was your most tricky section of the walk? Between Langdon Beck and Dufton, possibly, which yeah. involved quite... There's a place called Falcon Clints, which is just a series of huge rocks along the side of a river. And you don't, I don't know if Damien remembers them, but you don't have the option really going round them because of the river. Mm. And so you kind of have to clamber over them. And then shortly after that, there's a quite, for me anyway, quite a tough scramble up the side of Cauldron Snout waterfall. And I, I admit that I was nervous. I mean, I, you know, if I'd... If I'd put a foot wrong, I wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been a happy outcome, really, because I was on my own. You know, if I'd fallen, that would have been it, really. It is a very challenging route, isn't it? And it's not to be tackled lightly. 
No, I, I, I'm very glad that I, it wasn't my first walk, distance walk. I'm, mm. I'm glad that I'd had, you know, f- four walks to sort of prepare for it because it really stretched my boundaries as a as a hiker. And I'm sure it must have stretched uh, Damien's as well, r- running it, because, it, you know, it's a very tough, tough old walk. It's a tough old walk, and it got the better of quite a few people that I passed on the way. And I only, I have to thank the people on Twitter who gave me tons of advice and put my podiatrist (laughs) (laughs) me through and my physio. You know, I I was given all these exercises to kind of keep me keep me going and keep me sort of supple, stop me stiffening up, and that's that's what got me through. It is often said that with a long distance walk, it's not the first day that's the worst; it's not the second but it's the third and the fourth days when it really starts to eat into you. Would that be your experiences, do you think? It is my experience, certainly, um, particularly if you haven't warmed up, mm. you know, if you haven't been gradually building up your exercise routine uh, before you start. It always hits me on the third day, and unfortunately for me, I think if there was a depressing day on the Pennine Way, then there's only one, and that's the third day. Yes. Where you cross the M62 I've often heard that, yes. It's just, and there's sort of telephone, I don't want to put anybody off, but it's <laughs> stunning after that. If you persevere through the third day, it it just gets better and better. I've actually got an um, alternative um, least favourite section, much as I uh, loathe to, to talk negatively about, about sort of my, my favourite national trail. And I was just thinking, to, to answer your question as well, Andrew, I'm often sort of guided by the landscapes into how tough I'm finding it. it's often mental for me in that I remember not enjoying walking alongside reservoirs very much because it, it can be incredibly mm. flat and stony if your feet are a little bit tender I can I'd rather uh, where the landscape's changing and, and often that those moors are often actually quite kind to your feet um and, unless there's flagstones I suppose but um but there's actually a section later on after Alston that um is probably my least favorite there's just for some reason that I, I haven't fully fully looked into, you sort of stay down in the valley. You can sort of see the hills on either side of you, and you sort of think, I want to be up in the hills. But also, it's just very fiddly, and there's a lot mm. of sort of f- farm fields and a lot of navigation. Between, it's yeah. a fiddly section, and, and, you're, and you're quite tired, and you're not on the hilltops either. And I just remember finding that section. It's Alston to... Greenhead. Greenhead, yeah, that would be it. And then Greenhead's wonderful because you're up on you're up on Hadrian's Wall and you're like, wow, this is you know this is, this is incredible. But um, that little section is, gets me down a bit, little bit, if anywhere does, yeah. Uh, you're right, and you know the bits where the scenery is stunning, you don't, it, you don't, you never find it particularly hard, because my jaw was just open for a lot of the stretches really, and I didn't think for a moment about how tired I was. At places like High Cup Nick and Hadrian's Hall and High mm-hmm. Force, and you know they were easy, and as you say, mentally, because there was just so much to see and be impressed by really in the scenery. So it's really easy to start the walk. You can easily get to Edale on the train. How do you get back to where you need to be after you finish the walk at Kirk Yetham? You get a very small country bus that runs every two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> to, well, this, the way I did it anyway uh, was I got the bus to Kelso. Hmm. Um, and then I had a, a fair old wait at Kelso for a bus to Berwick. Yes. you can either either get another bus um, which uh, I pondered doing 
to Newcastle, in my case. Or you can hop on the train. Luckily, Berwick is on the main line from London to Edinburgh. Indeed. So it's two buses to the main line trains, basically. How did you do it, Damien? I think I think it was a similar journey. I did manage to get home. to. I live just outside Bath. I did manage to get all the way home in fairly good time, like maybe late afternoon. I think I did. There was a bus the very next morning. I think Sundays are definitely tricky. I wouldn't want to finish the Pennine Way Saturday and then and then sort of wake up on the Sunday and think, right, I want to get home. <laughs> um, but I think the rest of the week there are a few buses. And I did, you know, I caught one fairly early, maybe, you know, maybe before eight o'clock and I was home in fairly good time. So I, I did think that was sort of one of the myth of the Pennine Way that, that was sort of half half busted in that, you know, you're, you sort of end up in the middle of nowhere and can't escape. Um, but I think as long as you don't try and escape on a Sunday, then I, th- I think you should, and are prepared to get up at a reasonable time. You might, uh, might you may well think you've earned yourself a good lion when you've finished. Better my, to be um, on the bus on your way home, isn't it? It probably is. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite little anecdotes was, you know, the border hotel there where everyone, you know, with a traditional endpoint. And um, originally, Alfred Wainwright um, put some money behind the bar there so that everyone who finished the Penang Way could could get a drink for free on him. The pubs still honour that themselves, and they pay for you. A free half. Yeah, I, I claim um, my drink. Fantastic. It is good for you. Well, I, I walked the whole thing um, thinking I would get a free half at the end. But of course, I did first time around, I did it in two goes. And I was so I strode confidently into the bar sort of saying, um, right, you know, I've, I've walked it all. Um, they said, oh, actually, it's you, you have to do it in one go, which was a bit crestfallen about. <laughs> but I did ask the barman, I said, I said, um, how can you tell if someone's not fibbing? You know, what if someone just walks in and goes, oh, I've just bought the pen away. so exhausted. Well, that's why he, he said, oh, <laughs> you can tell, he said. And of course, you guys now have to do it all again. And this time, not stop at Kirk Yatham, but continue all the way on the new Gore-Tex National Trail all the way up to Cape Wrath. Well, that would, that would be a very exciting thing to do. Um, I would love to... Um, I would love to do that. I, I suppose I always see when I retire. I always see the first thing I want to do is walk sort of Lands End, John O'Groats, and, and that would that would be the way I would um, probably do it. But if I can do it find on that a way section. to do that, yeah, I think so. If I could find a way to do that before then, I, I very happily would. A guidebook is probably required for the whole thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Rose, Damien, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And you can find links to Damien's Pennine Way book and Rose's blog on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on the Walks Around Button blog. And you can get to that by clicking through from the website at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Now, if you attempt the Pennine Way, you'll be crossing over some of the most degraded peak uplands in Britain. But a scheme backed by the EU and a range of corporate partners has been working hard to stop that and to bring the areas of the Peak District and the South Pennines back to life. We've been filming some short video podcasts to help explain what the team have been doing up on the moors. And on one of those filming days, I chatted with Kath Wynne, but first Brendan Whitram, the Moor Life Conservation Contracts Manager, tells me more about the project. So, Brendan, where are we today then? This is uh, Rishworth Common. Uh, it's a Yorkshire water site that's uh, part of the Moor Life project. It's one of four sites that we're working on under the Moor Life project. We've got Turley Holes, which is north of here, and then we've got Bleaklow and Black Hill, which are further south down in the Peak District. So tell me about what the Moor Life project is all about. The Moor Life project is a EU-funded project that offers a chance for us to protect the active bank bog that's within the Peak Districts in the South Pennines 
by restoring the degraded moorland that's around it because where there's the erosion occurring on the moors it risks further erosion degrading the peat that's already there and washing away and the active blanket bulk. So it's not as bad here is it but on on Kinder and Beeklow that's been tremendously bad hasn't it? Geographically the lower sites within the, the peat district have had greater amounts of industrial pollution from the industrial revolution way back in sort of the mid 1800s and the prevailing winds have taken the pollution across the moors because they're higher they receive greater amount of rain and so they've just locked in a lot more heavy metals from this industrial pollution which makes the condition of the moor the heavy metals that are in the ph levels it makes it very acidic it makes it a very harmful environment for plants to flourish and so when you get wildfire trampling from people and that strips the vegetation off, the vegetation's got no chance of coming back because of the hostile conditions that are up there. Up in the South Pennines, the Turley Holes and the Rishworth sites, the, the pollution levels are not so great. The pH is slightly higher and so that erosion has not been so damaging. But it is occurring and we don't want to get into a situation where we've got the erosion as bad on Turley Holes and Rishworth is what it is on Bleaklow and Black Hill. And so that's why the, the Moorlife Project offers a great opportunity to come in to put a stop on the erosion at a stage that is easier to do than 20 years down the line. As walkers, are we at fault here for trampling over areas of Bleaklow? It's not their fault. You know, everyone wants to go out and enjoy the countryside. The problem is, is that once you get a bare area, nobody wants to walk on it because it's, it's wet, it's muddy, it's horrible. So then you walk on the bit next to it and that then erodes that bit and then that cycle goes on so you end up with quite a wide path if you had a healthy moor the bit that you no longer walk on the original bit that went bare would recover yes but because of the conditions that are up there that doesn't recover that so it's kind of it's not the walker's fault the walker's so it's, walk. it's, it's kind of like human nature isn't it you'd like to walk over some nice moorland rather than, than some boggy or cracked areas yeah but the fact that the prevailing conditions have not helped that land recover yes that's it and so what we've seen is it won't recover until something's done you know a lot of the flagged footpaths are there for that reason because it concentrates people, it protects the vegetation around it, and so once the flagging goes down, the vegetation will re-establish once it's sort of reseeded. And how far along the, along the project are we at the moment, then, in the different areas? The entire Moor Life project area, all 800 hectares, will have had its initial treatment of brash and grass seed and its initial treatment of lime and fertiliser. So by the end of this year's growing season, there should be a carpet of grass seed across the whole of the bare areas. And then the idea is that we continue treating that nurse crop in order to allow it to fully establish and provide a good root mass to stabilise the peat and allow the dwarf shrubs that we also see at the same time to establish. We're now moving into diversification, so we're putting plug plants down with uh, crowberry, cloudberry, bilberry and cotton grass that we can't seed aerially because of the nature of the seed. Um, so we put those down as plugs which will provide a seed source and allow these plants to establish over time. And then the final stage is the sphagnum reintroduction. The sphagnum is the ultimate aim of the project, it's the bog builder and so we want to get the sphagnum down to get the sphagnum established. So we provide, we're creating the right conditions so the sphagnum should be able to establish and grow. It's a slow growing thing so it'll take 10, 20, 30 years before sphagnum's recolonised but by reintroducing it we're 
getting the first steps towards that's happening. And how has this, this, this sort of mini heat wave that we've had over the last sort of week, two weeks, how has that affected the, the areas that we're walking on the moment? It's, it's been great for us because it's allowed us to do some work. Uh, because we use helicopters all the time, the helicopters can't fly when it's too wet, it's too windy, it's too cold, so they need good weather to fly. So we've been able to do lots and lots of work getting the lime and the fertiliser and the seed on, but the grass that's already there needs some water to grow. So we kind of need to finish the lime and the furt and then for rain to allow the grass to establish. So a couple of days of good rain is really needed? Would be good. The moors are meant to be wet, they're bog environment and uh, as we found walking across it today they're bone dry, you know, my shoes haven't got muddy and uh, it needs a bit more water. And that's most unusual isn't it because when we're walking over this area normally you expect to be squelching around don't you? Very much so and what we're actually hearing is you can hear the crisp crunch underfoot of the dry vegetation breaking so fingers crossed there's no fire because a lot of the work in Bleaklow in particular is we're working on areas that got badly burnt in the Great Bleaklow fire mm-hmm. so it's that fire strips back all the vegetation which takes back to what I was saying before that then there's no chance of re-establishing so this dry conditions there is great fire risk that we need to be careful of not causing any fires. Catherine, so Kath, tell me about what, what it is that you do with the project. Uh, I'm the More Life project manager, so my role is firstly to keep the accounts of the project and make sure we're fulfilling the requirements of all the different people funding the project. But also I oversee all the different elements of the project. So we have the restoration works, we have the monitoring works, and we have a scheme of communication works alongside so we can let people know what we're doing what the benefits to the more are and what we're hoping to achieve. Because the restoration of it isn't much use, is it, if the causes of the problems in, in the past are going to happen again? No. The problems occurred and why we're trying to fix it is due to some causes which in a lot of the cases, especially on Bleaklow, has come from wildfire. So that risk still remains, even once we've restored the works, that the works could be destroyed again. So if we can do our work to let people know Mm. what the risks are and try and produce that in some way, it makes the works a lot more beneficial. And with this weather that we've got at the moment, that's even more prevalent, isn't it? Yeah, if um, this last week, so in July, we've had very little rain since the end of March and it is a very, very real risk. Now, from my point of view, you, you can't imagine anybody being so silly as, as to walk out with naked flames or with barbecues but it does happen. It does happen and people don't realise that we're on peat moorland and peat was traditionally a fuel and is still used as a fuel so even if you think your disposable barbecue is out it could smoulder, set fire to the peat and it could go deep into the peat same with a discarded cigarette or um, a bit of glass that can concentrate that heat source so altogether, they, it's not deliberate necessarily, but it's, it's just not thinking through all of the consequences of what you're doing when you're enjoying the sunshine. And an education programme is essential for that, isn't it? Yeah, and we've got um, the information out into schools and we've got local schools to have produced uh, shadow puppet videos outlining the, the dangers of fire in the moorland. So we're starting young. We want people to, to come out and experience and enjoy these areas, don't we? But we, we want them to be responsible whilst they're here. Yeah, we want them to enjoy them and we would encourage them to come out and enjoy them. And we're producing tools to enable them to come out and enjoy them with audio trails describing what we're doing and, and giving information on the works and leaflets. 
but at the same time we we have to say that be responsible message alongside it some of those areas were, were pretty ravaged weren't they yeah you would have a sea of bare peat and the green aspect would be the rarity rather than the the common part of the landscape i've met friends in and around the peat district who have said how wonderful this wild nature landscape is of bare peat and mud and people don't even realize that that's not natural that's caused by industrial pollution by wildfires and is eroding rapidly away so it's so common to have that bare peat that people don't realize that that's not what should be there from a walker's point of view what can we do to help maintain the areas um it's it's just being sensible really um keeping to the paths where there are defined paths uh not wandering off but most importantly if you spot a fire reporting the fire don't take your barbecue out or or dispose of your cigarettes it's it's maintaining a, a sensible head and thinking what if while you're up there rather than oh it'll be okay yeah how good will this be to to think that you've been involved in making these moors back to the way they ought to have been it gives you a good sense of job satisfaction to know that there is a long-term benefit of what you're doing for this generation and future generations something long-term isn't it yeah and you can find out more about the moor life and the moors for the future projects at their website moorsforthefuture.org.uk and a selection of the videos that we've made are also on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on the Walks Around Button blog. And you can get to that by clicking through, as always, from the website at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Well, that's it for another podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes for free to make sure that you never miss an edition. But until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking. <laughs>